despite being fictional, arguably the most legendary detective of all time is Sherlock Holmes. He's known for his proficiency with observation, deduction and logical reasoning that borders on the fantastic. His other perhaps more understated talent is to solve murder mysteries using his knowledge of poisonous plants. So out of the 60 or so Sherlock Holmes stories, there are five cases of homicidal poisoning, including in the Sword of Osman, where a chief armourer is found dead following abdominal pain, dizziness and sweating. Sherlock is able to immediately deduce that the man has died after being given monk's hood, a purple plant also known as the queen of all poisons. These references to botany and poisonous plants within the series are more than just part of Sherlock Holmes's character. Class rolls dating back to 1877 and archives from the Royal Botanic Garden Edinburgh reveal that the creator of Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, took a break from studying medicine to take a course in botany. While he attended 60 classes, seven demonstrations and nine excursions, he had access to plants such as opium and belladonna, a deadly nightshade. He didn't start writing the infamous Sherlock novels until a decade later, but it's clear his interest and knowledge of botany definitely stuck with him. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and in this Fast Flora Facts episode of Branch Out, we're going to explore the real world of forensic botany. Forensic botany is the identification of plants or plant products to produce evidence for legal trials. This includes the analysis of plant and fungal parts such as leaves, flowers, pollen, seeds, wood, fruit, spores and microbiology, plus plant environments and ecology. The aim is to link plant evidence with a crime. Like in the Sherlock Holmes stories, this may be as obvious as identifying a plant-based toxin that was used to poison someone, or it could be finding microscopic hairs of a leaf clinging to a murder suspect's jacket. Discovering what the plant species is and where it comes from can help identify how the plant was used or where and when the crime took place. Unlike in some fictional TV crime shows, real-world forensic botany is very complex and knowing what to look for is essential. With a whole plant or pieces of a plant like leaves or wood, DNA analysis can be used to identify the specimen. But if you've just got plant extracts, a chemical analysis performed where scientists look for the botanical fingerprint of the plant chemicals using something called liquid chromatography. This is a technique in analytical chemistry used to separate, identify and quantify each component in a mixture. Forensic botanists then compare the results to chemicals already on a database to identify the plant samples. But these tools and techniques weren't always available to scientists. One of the first criminal cases to use forensic botany is connected to American aviator hero Charles Lindbergh. 
Charles gained fame and fortune in 1927 as the first person to fly solo, non-stop across the Atlantic on a flight from New York to Paris. At 10 o'clock, 5 New York time, he saw the lights of Paris. He saw the hangars, the roads jammed with cars. Safely on the ground, he had barely cut the engine when the crowd reached the plane. They shouted his name over and over again, Lindbergh, Lindbergh. His marriage to Anne Morrow Lindbergh and the subsequent birth of the couple's first child, Charles Jr., was followed with enormous interest by the media and captivated the whole world. But on March 1st, 1932, when Charles Jr. was just 20 months old, he was kidnapped from his second-story nursery. It was called the crime of the century and drew the attention of the American people in a way that has rarely been matched until the criminal trial of O.J. Simpson. Evidence left at the scene was a bit patchy, but there was a handmade wooden ladder which was used to get into Charles Jr.'s room on the second story of the Lindbergh house. When the newspaper headlines announced the kidnapping two days later on the morning of March 3rd, a wood technologist from the US Forest Service, Arthur Kohler, was intrigued by the possibility of tracing the ladder's maker. Despite having previously provided testimony in several legal cases using his knowledge of wood and woodmaking skills, respected scientific evidence in 1932 was mainly limited to analysing fingerprints and handwriting, examining stomach contents and bullet markings. But the director of the Forest Products Laboratory asked Arthur to identify slivers of wood taken from the kidnapping ladder. After analysing these, Arthur reported back that four kinds of wood made up the ladder and one was identifiable to the important group of commercial timber pine species of the southeastern United States, commonly called yellow pine. Eleven days after the kidnapping, the kidnapper made contact with the authorities and demanded a ransom of $50,000 in return for instructions on finding the child. Despite the ransom being paid, the instructions proved false and the remains of Charles Jr. were tragically found several weeks later, just a few miles from the Lindbergh estate. The investigation continued for two years without any major breakthroughs. In a quest for new leads, the police turned again to the ladder and they gave Arthur the opportunity to see the whole ladder itself, not just samples of the wood. Arthur began a remarkably detailed investigation that eventually produced the most unshakable evidence of the trial to connect one man directly to the crime. Through a process of wood anatomical comparisons, which involved comparing annual growth rings of trees and other tree growth patterns such as knots, Arthur demonstrated that one of the side rails of the ladder must have been previously part of a floorboard in the kidnapper's attic. He also established that the kidnapper's hand planing tool had been used to dress the edges of several ladder parts. Using these clues, Arthur and the police were able to successfully trace the wood used in the ladder to one specific timber mill. But unfortunately, the critical sales records that would have narrowed the search down to a few customers wasn't available. 
Although they couldn't get any closer to his exact identity, they determined that the kidnapper most likely was a carpenter living in the vicinity of the Bronx National Lumber and Millwork Company. They were also able to narrow the search geographically and independently to correspond to the area in which the ransom had been paid. The bills from the ransom began to appear in the New York area and consisted of five, 10, 20 and $50 gold certificates, which had become a legal tender. Gas stations in the area were requested to record the license number of any car whose owner passed a gold note. The break finally came when a gas station attendant wrote the car license number on the margin of a $10 gold ransom note exchanged for gas. This was then traced to a Bruno Richard Hauptmann, a German carpenter who lived just 10 blocks from the National Lumber and Millwork Company. After inspecting his home, garage and tools following his arrest, Arthur had been right about everything. The hand plane found in Hauptmann's garage made the exact markings found on the ladder, and they located the portion of Hauptmann's attic floor that was used to construct the ladder. In February 1935, Hauptmann was convicted. And on April 3, 1936, after a series of appeals, he was executed by electrocution. Arthur Kohler's testimony in this important trial was a real turning point in the acceptance of botanical evidence as expert scientific evidence in courts, and the field has only continued to expand. Dr. Barbara Briggs is one of Australia's leading botanists, and she's been performing research at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, for over 60 years. In 1960, she assisted police with a kidnapping murder case when an eight-year-old Graham Thorne was abducted in Sydney after leaving home for school. Graham Thorne's parents, Basil and Frieda Thorne, had won an opera house lottery, and a man with a noticeable foreign accent telephoned the Thorne household, claiming he had Graham and demanded £25,000. Over the weeks that followed the kidnapping and when he went missing, public appeals were made and police chased various other leads. And the phone rang and um, this bloke said, I've got your son and he's on £25,000 uh, and if I don't get it by five o'clock, I'll feed him to the sharks. Is there any appeal you'd like to make to him? Well, all I can say is that the person that's got him, if he's a father and got children of his own, well, for God's sake, send him back in one piece. It was a case that would mark the origin of modern forensic science in Australia. Unfortunately, nearly six weeks after the kidnapping, Graham Thorne's body was discovered wrapped in a blanket and hidden on vacant land in Grandview Grove, Seaforth, in Sydney. There were a variety of clues from the forensic examination of the blanket, including some tiny plant fragments. After just one year of working as a botanist at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, Dr. Barbara Briggs was assembled into a team of detective botanists, tasked with assisting the police in the kidnapping murder case. Here's a segment from a previous episode of Branch Out where I interviewed Barbara about her involvement in the case. 
the team only had a few dried fragments to go off. They were dry, but we are used to our plant specimens being dry. We keep a herbarium of plant samples and once dried, if they're protected from mould and insect attack, they will last for centuries. And it's that library of specimens held at the National Herbarium of New South Wales at the garden that made it possible to identify the plants in that rug. One particular leaf was my uh, responsibility and when I had uh, assured myself what it, uh, what it was, I sh did show that to one of the more experienced botanists to ch just check it out. Now that leaf didn't solve the story, but it was a case that brought home how much information in a single leaf about four millimetres long, one millimetre wide, you had enough information, the hairs on the leaf, the texture, the surface, to be very sure what it was. Picture that, from fragments smaller than a grain of rice these botanists were able to figure out what kind of trees grew at the kidnapper's house. But Barbara's leaf was a dead end. So how did they unlock the case? Uh, finding two different conifers, a postman noticing these two conifers growing at the front of a house. So was it the fact that these were unusual for someone to have in their backyard? Are you saying a postman was involved? Uh, yes, these two species, one of them was unusual and my understanding was that in the area where they believed uh, the kidnapper had probably lived, they did inform the police what they were looking for. It was a bringing together of clues from different areas and the first really a scientific forensic case that Sydney had had to deal with. We didn't then have the sort of resources of forensic science that one has now. With the advent of DNA technology that followed, the field of forensic botany only became more advanced. But the collection of over one million plant specimens at the National Herbarium of New South Wales is still a powerful resource today. Operating out of the herbarium at the Australian Botanic Garden, Mount Annan, is a dynamic duo of plant detectives, Andrew Orm and his colleague, Sienna McCune. Part of their role, which is formally called Identifications Technical Officer, means helping members of the public identify plants found on their property and sometimes they're even sent gut contents from dead livestock to work out if they died from a poisonous plant. Another key part of their service and expertise is to also work closely with law enforcement agencies to verify drugs found in raids, such as opium and cannabis, or to identify plant materials found at crime scenes. Using the herbarium specimens, which date as far back as 1770, reference books and microscopes, Andrew and Sienna can identify plant material to help solve murder and even counter-terrorism crimes, and they often provide crucial evidence in court. Unfortunately, due to the sensitive nature of these investigations, many of which are still ongoing, I can't share any of those details. Thanks for listening to Branch Out. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star rating and a review. 
It helps more people find Branch Out to discover the surprising world of plants. If you'd like to hear that previous Branch Out episode with Dr. Barbara Briggs in full, it's from August 2018, and it's called Detective Botany and DNA with Barbara Briggs. Next week, I'm going to share an episode from another wonderful podcast about plants, which is hosted by horticulturist Daniel Fuller. It's called Plants Grow Here, and it's all about helping people become an unstoppable plant whisperer. So make sure you hit subscribe or follow on your podcast app to keep getting Branch Out episodes. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and this episode of Branch Out was produced by Dan Butler.